I'm going to be adding in a couple detail, details here that will be important for what we're doing today. So pay close attention. We went over last week basically a summary of the three phases, if you will, of a person first learning about Jesus if they know nothing, then what they need to learn and understand and show fruit of in order to be baptized. That's the second phase. And the third is what are the first things they need to be taught after they're baptized. So this is like the first few phases of a person's discipleship. The first of that phase, you could just call that the initial conversation or relationship that you have with a person, is based on a simple gospel of the kingdom, which is the term that's used in Mark. And we've gone over this a few times, but the gospel is summarized in three categories. The first is repentance, the second is belief, and the third is following Christ, or you could call that obedience to Christ. And Jesus taught all three of those things to unbelievers and to those who were his disciples. So when it came to preaching the gospel, he taught people the necessity of repentance, the necessity of faith in him, and the necessity of obedience to that faith, which he described as being his disciple, which is about following him. So all those things we've gone over are important to be explained to a person who's being introduced to Christ. Then, assuming a person wants to hear more and they're beginning, beginning that track of wanting to learn more about Christ personally, that gets into that second phase, the, the teaching that comes before a person's baptized. And that includes what are called the six elementary principles that are described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2 says the basic or first principles of a person's learning are repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, within those six elementary principles, there is teaching on them that shows up in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts. And we went over a few examples of that last week to show you guys that all six of these things, Jesus and the apostles, especially the apostles in Acts, talked about to audiences that were both believers and unbelievers. So unbelievers heard about these things as well. And the one that always came first was repentance. We've gone over that extensively. They, they told people to repent first. And then they told people to turn to God by putting faith in Jesus. And that was what always came second. And then they got into baptisms and then into the rest of them. So what I'm going to do to finish out this sort of phase two pre-baptism review is to go over a few points that we went over last week. The first, when it comes to repentance, was essentially teaching a person to begin repentance or to begin the first understanding of repentance as the need to take steps to turn away from sin that they're personally convicted of. So we went over a scriptural example of that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. Talks about that. 
And we will look at another one in Luke. Luke chapter 3. This is John the Baptist teaching. So the other one is in Luke chapter 3. And you will find in verses 10 through 14 that he looked at specific audiences and then told them to begin repenting of something that was relevant to their life personally. So we went over some examples of that. So you could write down that reference as well. Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Then we went over faith. And within faith toward God, which is the second elementary principle, that faith begins by understanding in more detail that Christ's work ultimately on the cross and his fulfilling the law is what justifies a person. So in other words, you're saved by grace through faith and not by your works. That's one of the first aspects of faith that's important. The second is the action that a person's take, that a person takes to begin obedience to the gospel. So I mentioned last Sunday that repentance is what you turn away from, faith is what you turn to. So you might have one person who ceases a certain course of action that would be sinful and then they begin taking action in something that would be considered an obedience to what God's desire is. So one example might be, let's say, a person turns away from sexual immorality. An action of obedience might be, in, including stopping that, it might be choosing the right person to marry, marrying them, and then building a godly marriage. That would be like a process of going away from sin to God's desire or intention. So that's away from, unto, or repentance that leads into faith. And so that's the, the second part of faith is the action that a person takes to begin obeying what God says or what the Bible says. Then in baptisms, still in this pre-baptism phase when it comes to the doctrine of baptisms, it's important for a, for a person to understand the purpose and meaning of water baptism because that's what's going to come next. What does it mean to be baptized in water? What does it accomplish? What does it mean to bury the old man and rise a new creation? Then you've got understanding what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, because that's what happens when a person is born again. What does that mean? And that's mentioned in Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14, which is a reference you can write down if you're taking notes. Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14. And we get to laying on of hands, and we went over this in quite a bit of detail last Sunday that it's important for a person to understand the purpose and value of someone studying with them, pointing them to Christ, ministering to them, and ultimately baptizing them. This could include laying hands on them and praying for them for healing, or whatever it might look like based on whatever the needs are in that person's life. And we looked at Acts chapter 8, verses 30 through 38, which talks about Philip walking through the scriptures with this Ethiopian eunuch um, that he spoke with in the desert. So that's Acts chapter 8, verses 30 through 38. 
Basically, this means when a person's being led to Christ, they're taking interest, they're close to being baptized, it's important that they understand the need for a person to be with them, a person to help disciple them, a person to help guide them. Um, and included in that is the laying on of hands. So that's what we went over. Then the fifth one, resurrection of the dead. Basically speaking, is understanding that Jesus rose again from the dead physically. And that with that is the promise that we will also one day be physically resurrected at the second coming. And those two points essentially summarize what's most important for a person to understand when they're first being taught about Christ. They need to know that Christ has risen from the dead because 1 Corinthians 15 says that if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So a person has to know and believe that Christ rose again from the dead and that we will one day be resurrected as well. And then you have eternal judgment, the sixth one. And the most basic understanding of that is that there's a heaven and there's a hell, that they're both eternal. And the description is that you either have everlasting life with God or everlasting torment, banished from God, which is what hell is. And that includes also that Christ is going to one day return from heaven to judge the earth, and that judgment will, re will result in eternal consequences. Those are the two things about eternal judgment that are most important. The last part, that Christ will return one day to judge the earth, and that judgment will result in eternal consequences. And this is a physical, of course, a physical return. So that is the aspects of a person's teaching before they're baptized. So, of course, you would assume then, and this is what we went over last week as well, that a person before they're baptized should have an understanding of these things because they're all considered uh, essentials and basics for a new believer. Yes, do you have a question? If there's a green light that comes on, then it's on. You should... It's red? Oh, it could be out of battery. Yeah. Maybe grab a different one. Yeah, I'll, re I'll repeat it anyway. Okay, so in that listing, in the NASB, it says, I'm instructed about washings and laying out of hands. So what does washing mean? Washings, so when it comes to the doctrine of baptisms, there are, Laura, you mentioned this last week, that there's some, some teaching out there that says there's three kinds of baptism. It's debated. There's two main ones. But there is water baptism, which, of course, is a physical practice. Then you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which that's actually, that actually gets into the post-baptism phase, which we'll get into. And then there's this inner baptism and Titus uh, chapter 3 and verse 5 calls that the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, and that happens internally. So I would imagine that washings is something that happens physically in the act of water baptism and also happens spiritually inside when a person is saved. That's called the washing of regeneration. Um, so that would be my, I would say, basic answer to that question. But that's interesting that NASB translates it that way. Yeah, inner cleansing. Yeah, yeah, that happens spiritually. Yep, when a person's saved. Okay, so that was all the pre-baptism, pre, pre -baptism, before a person's baptized, but they have to understand. Then we went over 
post-baptism, so what a person needs to understand and be taught about either in or after that moment where they're baptized in water. Now, according to scripture, in Acts chapter 2 is where this first shows up, that when a person's baptized, that is meant to be the first step in them being added to the church, which, mean, which means they should be connected, or you could say plugged in, to a believing community immediately after that. And this is how they, how they practice it in Acts. Before they added people to the church, they had them baptized. And interestingly enough, the way that people were baptized was they would have either evangelists or the apostles go out and preach the gospel and make disciples, and they would baptize people, and then they would connect them to the church afterwards. Whereas, in many cases, um, when there's like baptism services and things like that, pretty much anyone who wants to be baptized can be baptized. Whereas the way that things were done in the book of Acts, they would have a person extensively taught and discipled by somebody who was working with them personally before they were then baptized and added to the church. That would be a more biblical way of going about it, um, as far as practically speaking. So what teaching is added? So this is basically the same elementary principles, but it's recycled, which means you go over the same things, but you add details that are more appropriate for somebody who's now a believer or a disciple. So the first when it comes to repentance from dead works, the way that it started before they were baptized is you just simply teach them to start turning away from what they're convicted of initially. And then you have continuing in repentance, which is something that I addressed last week as well. After a person's baptism, it's important that they understand how to continue in repentance. If I'm to summarize initial repentance and then continuing in repentance in a few, a few words, that basically means that initial repentance is the first time a person changes their mind and says, I want to turn away from doing things my way and start doing things God's way. That's the first thing that happens before a person gets saved. Only reason they're going to be willing to receive the gospel is because that repentance has taken place. Continuing in repentance is the changes that take place over the course of a, of a person's entire walk with God over the course of their life. Repentance should continue your entire life after you get saved because you're going to continue to be repenting of things as different sins are exposed, different bad habits, so on and so forth. There's a lot of believers. I actually just had a conversation with somebody the other day who thought that repentance only happened once. And that after that, you just had to make sure you stayed believing in Jesus and asking for forgiveness. But repentance is supposed to be a continual thing that happens in your life. It happens the first time when you get saved, but it continues the rest of your life after you're a believer. So the big question, and this is one of the things that I'm going to be having you guys discuss in this activity that we do, is to be able to explain to somebody and understand for yourself what the difference is between initial repentance and then continuing in repentance. And you should be able to explain what that means to a person, which is you change your mind to get saved and then you continue making changes throughout the course of your life as an act of obedience to God. And that continual or continuing in repentance is what's most important to teach on after a person's baptized. Scriptural examples of this. I actually have some notes on this on my phone. I'll pull up real quick so you guys can write down some references that you can refer to. 
There are a number of scriptures that talk about repentance unto salvation, which means that initial repentance. We've gone over some of those, a common one's Mark 1.15, Acts 2.38, which says, repent and be baptized. Mark 1.15 and Acts 2.38, those are two scriptures that talk about that initial repentance leading to salvation. And then you have examples where God tells a person to repent after they're a believer. There's two examples, or three actually, in Revelation. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 3, and then chapter 3, verse 19. Those are two, three examples in the book of Revelation. In those three cases, Jesus tells these churches and communities to repent of things that he names, but this is after they're saved. So these are believers, these are churches, and he tells them to repent of things, which of course means repentance is supposed to continue after you're born again. Amen? So again, just to make sure you guys got those, Revelation 2, verse 5, Revelation 3, verse 3, and Revelation 3, verse 19. So continuing in repentance. We went over also last week that the best way to help a person continue in repentance is to read the Bible with them. And you read through things, and you'll stumble across as you read things that the Bible either names wrong or sinful, and then things that it names that are right. And as a person reads, they should be able to see things that go, oh, I, I'm doing this in my life, and this scripture says I shouldn't. Or scripture says to do this, and I'm not doing it. And you can identify those things, and that helps expose a person to an action of repentance that they can take. So the best way to help a person continue in repentance is to read the Bible with them, because that's how you identify areas where change is needed. Okay, then you've got faith toward God. There's basically two sides to this. The first is increasing action that shows belief in Christ's words. So faith without works is dead. James chapter 2 says that. And the most basic actions a person's going to take to show that belief is ultimately going to be walking in love. That's the best way to summarize it. The way that a person's relationships with other people change is going to be one of the greatest demonstrations of a person's faith. They're going to want to start treating people differently. And so if you can walk them through scriptures that talk about showing their faith in actions and those actions being their generosity to people, their love for people, their kindness to people. Those are great scriptures to start with. And the book of 1 John is an awesome resource for that because all it talks about is love, pretty much the entire epistle. And it talks about love for God and love for people. So action taken to show belief in Christ's words. You could summarize that with simply walking in love. That's that first point. The other side of this is a person should understand how to grow their belief or grow their faith. Because just like repentance is something that you continue in, faith is something that grows when you're in Christ. And a person should understand how to grow their faith and what steps they can take to do that. And I won't get into what that actually looks like right now because we've gone over that in previous teachings a number of weeks ago. There uh, is a teaching you can find in the archives on YouTube or SoundCloud uh, that just talks about how to grow your faith if you want to look for that title, if you want to listen to that teaching. We went over that already. 
and the doctrine of baptisms, this is where we get into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So after a person is baptized in water, they come to Christ, they should understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it accomplishes, what its purpose is, and this includes the emphasis on obedience to the Great Commission. So when a person is bold to take steps to start sharing their faith with people, that's what makes or puts the gift of the Holy Spirit into practice. That's what makes it useful at that point. So you've got understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit, its purpose, and then obedience to the Great Commission. Those are the two parts of the doctrine of baptisms that show up next after a person's baptized. Then this carries into the laying on of hands, which is understanding its many uses. So there's a number of scriptures that go over this. I won't get into all of them right now. But anytime you see somebody, like in Acts, appointing something to a particular ministry, healing the sick, baptizing somebody, or baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, the laying on of hands shows up in all of those activities. So that means that a person should understand how the laying on of hands is used, and they can start using it when it comes to ministering to other people. So if they want to start sharing their faith, one thing that they can do is pray for people. And you can, they can do that with the laying on of hands, whether it's for healing or otherwise. That's an action they can start taking. And then, of course, this includes understanding the gifts of the Spirit, plural. So helping a person understand what the gifts of the Spirit are, how they're used, and even helping them identify what their gifts are. And this, of course, in many cases will take a while to get to a person to the place where they're ready to start understanding this, but it's really useful to a person for them to understand what their gifts are, how they're uniquely created, and what they can do uniquely and personally to start ministering to other people more effectively. And of course, you can read about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Yes. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. A person, so this is just a side note that I think is important. The Greek word for gifts of the Spirit is a derivative of the Greek word for grace, which is charis. That Greek word, meaning grace, is the root of the Greek word for gifts of the Spirit, which means that gifts of the Spirit, literally speaking, translate to graces of the Spirit. So a person's spiritual gifts are literally a grace of God in their life. The reason why it's a grace is because it's not their ability, it's God's ability in them, right? So if it's God's ability, and the literal meaning of the grace of God is the ability or empowerment or favor of God in a person's life, then you can't take credit for your spiritual gifts. Amen? And so, scripturally speaking, like an example is 2 Peter 3, verse 18. That commands us to grow in the grace of God. Again, that's 2 Peter 3, 18. So, if we can grow in the grace of God, and one of the expressions of God's grace in your life is your spiritual gifts, then that means you grow in how you use spiritual gifts as well. If you can grow in grace, you can grow in spiritual gifts. And that's probably one of the reasons why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 to desire spiritual gifts. He even says desire earnestly to prophesy. Because as you grow 
so does your ability to use certain spiritual gifts. So 2 Peter 3.18, again, is that verse that mentions that. So then we've got resurrection of the dead, the fifth one. I mentioned in the pre-baptism phase that you've got Christ's resurrection and then our future physical resurrection. Post-baptism, after a person's baptized in water, it's important for them to understand in detail the new man, which is about spiritual resurrection. It's ultimately about teaching a person that they have a new identity, they're a new creation, the old man is dead and buried, and their new identity is of righteousness and holiness. So a person should know they're a new person, they're a new creation after they're born again. And that's where this teaching comes into play. And you can find scriptures about that in basically all of Romans 6, Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11, and Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. Those are great ones. I'll name those again. Romans 6, Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11. And Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. All right, last one. That's also a good one, yeah. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 also speaks of that. Where God says he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit and write his laws on our minds and on our hearts. That's Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. All right, so last point, eternal judgment. This is where we get into the importance of a person understanding the eternal impact of their actions and then also eternal rewards for believers. So your actions here matter and they have an impact, understanding that in more detail. And two scriptures for that that are great are 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 11 and Romans 14 verses 10 through 12. Understanding the eternal impact of our actions and the eternal rewards for believers. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 and Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. Speak of that. Second point, I also touched on this last week. What it means to store up treasure in heaven. So Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Jesus spoke of this. Again, that's Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. How do you store up treasure in heaven? And to see if you guys remember from last week, what does that mean? There you go. Bring people to Christ. It's all about people. The only thing that will outlast eternity and the fires of God's judgment are souls, people. So the only thing you can take to heaven with you are people. That's it. You can't bring anything else with you. So that means literally the only thing that matters about your life here is winning people to Christ, not to yourself, (laughs) to Christ, (laughs) right? So making friends of Jesus is how you store up treasure in heaven. That's the only thing that will last through eternity. And so that should be our focus here on earth. And a believer understanding that is so, so important. And that's also what motivates a person being obedient to the Great Commission making use of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God's power is for the Great Commission because the Great Commission is the only thing that makes your 
life here really worth living? Because the only reason we're alive here is to add people to the faith. Because that's laying up treasure in heaven. So that finishes out eternal judgment. Question? Yep. First Peter chapter three. It starts at eighteen. Christ's suffering in ours. So mm -hmm. it goes through Christ's suffering, and it goes into uh, the water, the the flood. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yep. By him, if you start at nineteen, it says by him, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobediently, who formerly were disobedient. When once the divine long suffering waited, suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the re resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it, mm -hmm. Anyway, so it says there were eight that were, souls were saved through water, um, which I'm assuming that was the eight from, they were, the flood, the fact that they were saved from the flood was their salvation because they chose, they knew, though, were they the eight that were Noah's family? Yep, Noah and his family. Okay, yep. and so I've never heard it explained this way, that they were saved because they chose the, their actions to get on the boat and believe Noah was what saved them. Mm -hmm. So how so their salvation came through that work of believing Noah's report that the mm -hmm. flood was going to end the earth. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of confused as what type of baptism that would be. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, salvation from what? So this I love this topic. Do so you remember how Jesus said that the days before his return would be like the days of Noah? That's true for a variety of reasons. I won't get into all that right now. But Noah, the flood, the ark is all a massive type and shadow of Christ, the way to salvation, so on and so forth. And if you were to put it into the, the main elements, the flood is the wrath of God against sin. And the Bible says that just as the earth was cleansed with water in the days of Noah, it will be cleansed again, except this time with fire. That's what Revelation talks about, and Second Peter. The ark, interestingly enough, was covered in pitch, and the Hebrew word for pitch is the same Hebrew word for blood. So, the protectant from God's judgment for us is the blood of Jesus. Right? So even in the Hebrew language for Noah building the ark, it's, it's a type and shadow of Christ and his blood and his death. The faith of Noah to build the ark is our faith in the action of believing what God said, building a sound doctrine that we believe because that word saves us is what uh, 1 Timothy says. There's actually a, a passage in Ecclesiastes that says the, the words of the wise are like well-driven nails, which is interesting. So a sound construction for the ark, uh, 
symbolically for us is a sound doctrine because the word of God that we believe is what saves us. And Noah's family entering the ark is the same as people believing the gospel when we preach it and following Christ as a way to be protected and delivered, the Bible says, from the wrath to come. And that baptism, the reason why he mentions baptism, is because just like the waters of the flood cleansed the earth of sin, the waters of baptism and what happens inside you spiritually when you get saved is a cleansing away of sin in your life without cleansing you away. That makes sense. Because back then, God cleansed the earth by destroying everything, including people. Whereas today, when you're baptized, it's God cleansing sin out of you without getting rid of you, which is the reason exactly. Yeah, thank you, God, for that. <laughs> That's the reason why we're baptized, right? So that would be a way of using the type and shadow of Noah and the flood to teach what happens for us. We're delivered from God's judgment on sin through the blood of Jesus and our faith in him, just as Noah was delivered from the judgments of, judgment of God through the flood on sin by believing God's word and being protected in the ark that represented the covering of Christ's blood. That's what that means. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Also, I noticed in that scripture, too, it said that it wasn't about the water. It, it, it says it later on. It's not about the water. That, it's not the water that saved them. It was the fact that they believed. Basically, it was their actions that saved them. Because in the Old Testament, there, Jesus wasn't here yet to mm -hmm. save. So people had to be saved by their actual actions, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, I mean, in the same way for us, just like James 2 says, faith without works is dead. I will show you my faith by my works. The same way that people showed back faith back then is the same way we show faith now. The only way you actually demonstrate that you have genuine faith is with your actions. Because if, you, if you're one of Noah's kids and you believe that the flood is actually going to happen, you would show that faith by getting in the ark, right? So the only way we show that our faith is real is that we actually believe the Bible and start obeying it. That, that's the getting in the ark, if you will, is that obedience to the gospel. There's a verse, I'm just going to read this quick in Hebrews 11 about Noah. In verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now, we are divinely warned of things not yet seen, just like Noah was. What haven't we seen yet? Yeah, the tribulation, the second coming, the wrath of God on the earth during that time. That's not seen yet just like the flood wasn't. But God told Noah a hundred years ahead of time, hey, this is what's going to happen. And he believed it. So we built the ark and got in it. And we are given a very, very similar promise, except it's about his wrath through fire rather than through water. And our building the ark is God building the church built on the foundation of his word. And that's how we're saved. Amen. So just like Noah showed his faith, we show our faith. Yeah. Reinforcing. Well, of course. Yeah. Strengthening your faith. Yep. Yep. That's part of why one of the elementary principles is faith toward God because faith has to be strengthened. Yep. All right. Does that satisfy that, that question? Good. Okay. So conclusion before we do this activity here, there's, 
I'll just, I'll just read this off. Okay. To sum up the whole evangelism and discipleship process, here's an example of how things could go with a person from start to finish in bringing them from total ignorance to sincere faith in Jesus. One, you have a connection you make with a person and you share Christ with them initially. You establish a relationship. You begin talking about Jesus. If they want to hear more, you break down the gospel of the kingdom. This is what Jesus and the apostles preached first. Repenting, believing, and following Jesus. That's the first step. Second, if they show evidence of heart change, that's that initial repentance, you start teaching them the basics of the elementary principles, which is the same six we went over. Repentance for dead works, faith toward God, down the list. And you expect them or instruct them to begin repenting, and you watch for fruit of repentance in their life. I went over this last week, that before you baptize a person, this is what John the Baptist taught, before you baptize somebody, you look for fruit of repentance in their life, which means you look for evidence that shows they're repenting in some way, shape, or form. doesn't mean they have an overnight total 180, one person to another person, but they begin taking action that says, hey, my heart's changed, I want to live my life differently, I want to start following Jesus. That's called fruit of repentance, and that's what you look for before you baptize a person. Then after they're baptized, or the, you know, they express their commitment of their life to Christ, you baptize them in water, and then afterwards, you continue to meet with them and go over the elementary principles in more detail, which is the post-baptism teaching on the elementary principles that we went over. And then, of course, included in this is you have the continuing discipleship. They're added to the church. And another thing that I think it's important to add is just that people need to be taught things like the importance of work, providing for their own and their own family, how to maintain a healthy lifestyle, principles about marriage, parenting, relationships, money management, life things. Because that's part of being added to the church is people learn how to live a life as a citizen of God's kingdom and honoring his word and how they live, and how they conduct themselves. And I said this last week, and I'll say it again. Going through these three phases of the, the gospel of the kingdom, the elementary principles before and then after baptism, this is a long process. This isn't like a couple weeks. This usually will take years, especially if this is a person who knows absolutely nothing about Christ or about the gospel. There's... Um, a few people in my life right now that I have relationships with that I'm working with who we've been on just repentance and faith in terms of the gospel, repenting, believing, and following for months and months and months. And he hasn't taken any action yet. In other words, there's not fruit of repentance in his life yet. He talks about how he's believing in it, but he's not showing fruit yet. So I can't move on yet until he starts showing fruit. And that's what you look for. If a person starts showing fruit, you can move on to these, the, the next phases. But this will take a while. It takes a commitment of your time. It takes a commitment of your life. But if you want to have any startup in making disciples, it's really important to understand these things for yourself. Number one, to make sure that you've gone through them yourself, that you're bearing fruit in these areas, and then you can start sharing it with other people. Okay, any last questions? Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so if we're like, you know, trying to disciple people and stuff like that, but you say it's going to take a long time, 
how can we get to a point where we where we can do it like the disciples did, like or like Paul and Barnabas and those guys, like they would get people baptized and bring them to salvation in like a day, like hours. Yeah, preaching the gospel in like hours. Every person will be different because what you're reading about in Acts, most of Acts, or I should say the first half, the apostles are preaching to a Jewish audience that has their entire life reading the Jewish scriptures. So they have a lot of teaching already, like in synagogue and so on and so forth, about, about what the Bible says. So then they're introduced to the gospel, and that's just like one step forward, and then they're in. Whereas you get to the Gentile world, away from Israel, and that starts in about chapter 13 of Acts. And you have them preaching to crowds of people. Some people come to the faith right away. And then you have examples where it says that they would leave like there's one case where it speaks of this in, I believe it's 17, 16, 17 of Acts, where Paul goes and preaches and it's like a few people believe, a few number of people. They leave and then come back years later and now there's a church. So sometimes Paul would preach and there's a lot of people that believe and then there's times where it's only a few people and it takes a while before people actually start to to come to Christ. So it's different for everyone and it all depends on that person's heart. So then following the examples with the disciples where Jesus would literally be like, all right, drop your stuff and follow me. Yeah, yeah. Like in Mark 1 where he talks, you know, he talks to Simon and all those guys and he's like, drop your stuff, follow me. Don't be a fisherman, but be fishers. fishers be a fisherman, yep. yep. So where those guys, those guys are Jews, so it like almost falls under that case too, correct? Or? Right, they're, yeah, they're a Jewish audience. So for them, it would have been an easier step than if, if it was a Gentile. Um, however, if you look at like when Jesus called people to follow him, there was a lot of people that followed him around, and then he would start teaching something that was either confusing or hard for them to swallow, and then they would all leave. So there was a lot of people who started following Jesus and never actually followed through because it wasn't real to begin with. So Jesus was all the time telling people to follow him around, but it was very rarely that you saw a person actually stay. And the 12 apostles were the few that stayed because they were willing to put in the work, you know. Um, but it'll be different for everyone. There's, there's been times where it's been just a couple weeks and a person is just ready. And what we don't realize or don't think about oftentimes is that in order for a person to go from no receptivity to the gospel to immediately being ready, there's a lot of sowing and tilling of the soil of their heart. And there's a lot of work that other people put into that person that we just simply don't see. And then we try to take credit for them being converted. And we don't know all that was put into them that allowed them to get to that place. You know, so for everybody, it takes time. It's just that for some people, you might be working with them yourself from the very beginning of them knowing nothing all the way to them getting saved. Or you might step into a person's life after there's been years of them developing through other people's labor. So it, sometimes it appears that it's faster for a person, but that's simply because there was a lot of work put in by other people before you got there. You know, so does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, was there another question? Okay, there's quite a few, but you got the microphone, go for it. You mentioned seeing action, um, like keeping with repentance before you would move on. I was wondering the same thing as just kind of bouncing off the last question with the Ethi Ethiop Ethiopian eunuch. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he was reading the word, it said, so we don't know his back how much he had been reading the word, but um, what was his action that let uh, Philip go ahead and baptize him right then? There's, for him, it's basically two things. Number one, you already said it, was that he was reading the Bible by himself anyway already. So he's already wanting to understand Isaiah, uh, which is the prophet he was reading from. Because when Philip approaches him, he says, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, I, I don't. How can I unless someone guides me? That's the first sign he showed. The second was that without Philip having to say anything, the eunuch himself initiated saying, you know, I believe with all my heart and I, I want to be baptized. What hinders me from being baptized? So he's showing a desire to wash away his sin and follow Christ. And Philip hardly had to say anything. And of course, we know this, the, the Holy Spirit knew his heart and knew that he was ready because after Philip baptism, Philip disappeared. It says the spirit caught him away and took him to another place. So um, that does tell you that there are times when something will happen quickly in terms of, you know, your unique encounter with a person. But the evidence that that eunuch showed was his own reading of scripture and his own desire to initiate being baptized and washing away his sins, um, which would be a fruit that you could expect. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so what do we do with people like Lisa? The only thing I knew before I was born again is that Jesus died for my sin. I did not repent, per se. I didn't say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me my sin? And yet, for me, it was dynamic. I just said, okay, Jesus, I don't really get it. I don't really understand it, but here I am. I'm going to live for you. So, and maybe this is going forward. I understand all these things, but all these things is what I learned subsequent to my salvation. And so, how do we balance this out and go, okay, this, this is methodically how they did it. Um, but where do we leave room for the Holy Spirit to go, you know, like Lisa, she didn't get it, she didn't understand mm -hmm. it, but she was willing to follow, and she did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So key phrase in what you said was the only thing you knew was, Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to live for you now, right? That moment of I'm going to live for you now is repentance. That's, that's the initial repentance. Right, but nobody taught me that. And then when I did that, I just kept hearing the word baptism. It's like, you know, I was baptized sure. twice as a kid. Sure. And so, of course, then I went to my pastor and said, well, what does this mean? And then he taught me about water baptism. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that if, if somebody would have sat down and explained all of this to me, that people are going to spit in my face and persecute me, I'm kind of thinking I, I wouldn't have said, yeah, like, I'll, I don't know about anybody else. Um, but I really think that we need to leave room for the Holy Spirit to bring the salvation about rather than A, B, C, D, E, mm -hmm. and all in order. Yeah, I would simply add that the Holy Spirit did for you himself what he might have done through a person if there was a person there to teach it to you, you know. But a person can have a genuine salvation, which only can come through you know, their own repentance and faith. And that can come in a variety of different ways through different people, different circumstances, different situations. So none of this means 
it has to go this way for a person to be saved. It simply means that this is the way you see the apostles doing it, what they taught, how they taught it, when they taught it. But then, of course, you have the Ethiopian eunuch who just gets a few moments with Philip. And then, of course, you have the household of Cornelius, who Peter is just preaching a basic gospel, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on that audience, and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, of course, it happens differently for people depending on their hearts, where they are at, personally. Going over all these details, the whole A, B, C, D, E, is what it may look like when you're starting with a person who knows absolutely nothing. So they, they haven't really had any seed sown in their heart at this point, um, going from there to then salvation. But it can look, look different depending on a person's heart. And for in your case, Lisa, it just sounds like your heart was at a place where all you needed was that moment. And then the Holy Spirit led you to be baptized and you went and talked to that pastor, you know. So, um, but thank you for adding that. It just simply means that we have to be open for things to, to happen differently. But knowing this information allows you to be able to insert yourself into a person's life at wherever their progress is and know what to start with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if this correlated because you said... Uh, like placement of their hearts, kind of what people know and everything. But then, obviously, in Hebrews, God tells us, uh, he says, I put I put my laws in the, into their minds and write them on their hearts. Like, would that play a part as well, then? How yeah, so? Clarify. Right. Right, right. So, like. I think what he's trying to say is, is that why she felt like she was, uh, like, supposed to come to it? Because, you know, she said, like, her heart felt like it was necessary to do it. Even though she didn't understand what repentance was in the beginning, this almost would explain why. Because her heart, she, her mind didn't know it, but her heart did. Right, you know what I'm right. Yeah, I would say yes. Because, for example, Romans 2 says you have God's law in terms of, like, everybody has a moral compass. That's written on your heart. Everybody has a moral compass. And my mom actually has a similar story. She baptized herself in a motel tub, and she had never really had any teaching about it because of her conscience convicting her about right and wrong. So short answer, yes, that happens because God convicts a person by his spirit from the beginning, uh, from the moment that they hear and receive the gospel. But because God convicts people in different ways, for one person, it might be through the Spirit working and moving on what they already know. For another person, it might be they're convicted by a word that's shared with them by a person. So it just depends on exactly how it goes. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question?
the key is what you're teaching that you this is how you get saved. Mm -hmm. But my feeling on it is that what all this is, this is just flat out stuff we need to know, right? This is just if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to make disciples of men, this is the information that we've got to get in order to renew our mind. Mm -hmm. So to answer the question, is salvation, is this the process of that salvation, what you're presenting to us, or is this just all the essential doctrine that we need to know in order to renew our mind? Yes, <laughs> both and. I would say, here's the most basic way of putting it. Our experience, even if it resulted in a good outcome, does not mean that it was correct. God simply used whatever was available. What we're reading here is taken from examples of what the apostles did and what Jesus did, right? So if they did it this way, this would be like, Best case scenario. If it happens in a different way, great, God used it. But based on the example set by Jesus and the apostles, if we could do it this way, we should do it this way. If you're the person who were saved without this information, or at least in order to get saved, you have to at least have repented and put faith in Jesus. Let's say that was it and that's all you had. Then you're saved and then all this starts to be expanded to you. Great, because you do need to learn it anyway at some point. But based on the example set by Jesus and the apostles, going about it in the way that they preach the gospel would be the model that we should follow if we can. Does that make sense? Right, right, because there is a lot of drama. There is a lot of, a lot of things that we could avoid if we did things more based on the example they set. Yeah. Um. If you look at Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, it, the reason that he lays it out this way is this is our foundation. Mm-hmm. Okay, as, as Christians, if we don't have a foundation, that's where things start getting off or somebody focuses on something that might be not even uh, a basic doctrine and they go off and live their life on something that is what I would consider a non-essential truth. So we have to know the essential truths to build a solid foundation. Then we can learn more about other truths. But without that foundation, um, you, you just can get off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So I'm exactly. not sure about the reference either, but you do, where Jesus said... Um, that they he healed them, and at the same moment they were saved. And that was my own mom's experience at my own hands. I laid hands on her for healing. She got healed and saved and delivered all in one moment, one second. She didn't say, I repent. She didn't say anything else either. So that's another biblical example that this can happen without the instruction or teaching or training. Mm-hmm. And I get that this is, you know, what Laura just said, that this is foundational and we as followers, believers, need to know this stuff so that when somebody comes into our lives, we can be sensitive to the Spirit's leading as to where, what step do we step in here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, I know the examples you're speaking of. It's simply the few noted cases where Jesus would heal somebody and then he would tell them, your faith has saved you, which... That Greek word for saved can also be can also mean healed, delivered, set free, 
made safe and sound, what have you. But there, yes, there are cases, you're accurate, where people would go away with faith in Jesus because they were healed. And that simply means in the moment that Christ healed them, in their heart they repented and believed. And sometimes you don't see it because sometimes they don't say it, but it happened. But God knows that it happened. So, yes, things can happen that way as well. And we just got to know where to step in. Yeah. Just to rewind a little bit about, um, you're talking about, were you saying that everybody has a conscience? Everybody has a conscience and yeah. a more moral compass. Yeah. So, would you relate uh, Romans 2.14 to that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was referencing earlier in Romans 2. Yeah. Kelly? Um, okay, so the Bible teaches us there is one way to God through Jesus Christ. Well, there are currently 8 billion people on this earth, so there are 8 billion ways to Jesus. So that's how I think of it. Like everybody's path to Christ is different because we are all unique. We have all had a different life experience, but Jesus is the one path to God, but we can all come to Jesus in 8 billion different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so awesome. This process. Yeah. I, I think about how a lot of us who like Lisa, we get saved through our feelings, emotions, whatever, whatever, and it's not necessarily through a discipleship process. And so, however, a lot of us, when we first do that without this discipleship process or without all the scriptures, without this whole, we'll just call it a process, a lot of times we will have a salvation experience and then not walk out our salvation. We'll just kind of fall to the wayside because we haven't had any discipleship. But this process, I, 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 it's going to assure, most likely, that that's not going to happen. We mm -hmm. have the truth, we have our salvation experience, and then we follow it out, mm -hmm. rather than, oh, we have this revelation of God, and then nothing happens. Yep. But if we have this foundation, then the process is going to be more, it's, it's like an assurance that it's going to be followed to fruition from start to finish if we start with the process. Mm -hmm. And then a person will come to the knowledge of the truth at some point during that process, and then, but it still has to be yep. finished from beginning to end. Yep, yep, exactly, yeah. Uh, that's a great way of saying it. I want to add a comment to what you said, Kelly, that people do come, come to Christ in a variety of different ways. And biblically, what that means is they come to repentance or so something unique to them moves them to repentance. Biblical example would be the woman at the well. And then on the contrary, you might have Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches his message. He gives a very systematic, here's what you got to do to be saved, teaching. And they're convicted and they get saved. Whereas the woman at the well, for her, it was, you've had five husbands and the one you ha now have is not your husband. She goes, oh, you're a prophet. And that that moment, she believes that Jesus is the Messiah and goes and tells everyone about it, right? So what moved her to repentance was different than what moved the audience in Acts 2 to repentance. And it's all based on what is uniquely in a person's heart that would astound them to the point that they want to give their life to God. And that happens differently for everyone, but the information of the gospel is the same. You know, I am so grateful that I've learned this. Because with this, it's helping my personal walk. So now I know how to help somebody else in the way that God wants them to learn how to mm -hmm. come to Christ. And so I just think this is so valuable. If you didn't come this way, 
at least you have a grounds for like, wow, this is what I need to be doing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. In addition to this, if you want to be better at just helping people come to repentance, this is where growing in your relationship with the Holy Spirit is important. Because what the Holy Spirit might tell you to tell a person to help bring them to repentance is going to be different from person to person. And this is where hearing God's voice and growing in that becomes important because just like a couple of weeks ago, as an example, I was uh, at a Starbucks and for the longest time in my life, I thought every time I you know, was convicted to tell somebody about Jesus that I had to just go through like Romans Road, <laughs> like the whole thing. If I got the chance, right? And that's what I had to say. And then they, they got to know that. And so I've been learning lately, especially in like the past year, that it's not going to look that way for everyone. There was one time where I did that with a uh, sales clerk who was selling those like Dots ice cream cups at the Mall of America. I, I walked up to the stand, didn't even buy any ice cream. <laughs> I, I just was like, hey, <laughs> I got to tell you this, like, Da 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 Romans Road, do you want to do this? Yes. And he was like, just dazed, like, yes, yes, yes. He was so excited. And I was just like, oh, I didn't expect that, you know. <laughs> so then, so then I, I pulled him aside and prayed with him right there. And he was like, he was just so, it was amazing. That's happened to me once. <laughs> once out of like probably thousands of people at this point. So the past year I've been learning, okay, it's going to look different for everyone and learning to hear from the Holy Spirit. So just the other day, at this Starbucks, and I knew in my heart, all, and this took some restraint, you guys, all I knew I was supposed to do was tell her, ask her about her mom. I heard that, ask her about her mom, so I did. She described to me a situation with her mom that was pretty difficult. And I said, well, here's what scripture says about that situation with your mom. Gave her that. And that was it. I wasn't supposed to say anything else. She knew I was a believer. But the thing is, if she goes home, and puts into practice the wisdom that it was from Proverbs, that Proverbs gives about her relationship with mom, her mom, and it works, which of course it does, what is that going to do to her heart? She'll realize, man, this is, this is real stuff. It'll soften her, just like you said, exactly. And that would open her to receive the gospel. So your job when it comes to leading somebody to repentance is about knowing them well enough, whether through the spirit or through relationship with them, that you know what they need to be convicted to repentance. Once they are convicted, the content of the gospel is the same, but what leads them to repentance is different, and that's where you have to be moved by the Spirit. Yes? Um, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know if you already touched on this, but um, the story about Philip and the eunuch, what I love about that is where it says, you know, he was reading in Isaiah, and it was like, starting right there in Isaiah, is where he started preaching the gospel. He didn't take him back to Genesis. He didn't take him to the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. He started right where the guy was, right where he was reading. Right where and his heart was And I think that's so yep. important for us to remember that, mm -hmm. like you and the lady with her mom, like you started right there and you ended right there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that takes a lot of pressure off when we think that we have to just know the whole thing and be ready to, I mean, we should know it and be ready, yes. Um, but I think just like giving little bits for where they are right at that moment um, could do so much more than just throwing out the Roman road or mm -hmm. whatever else. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, exactly. You got to know where a person's at, and you'll, you'll start at a different place with everyone. The idea is that once they get there, they got to be discipled. And that's 
where most of this information becomes most important. So as a general practice, know this information so you're prepared. Be ready in and out of season, the Bible says. But also learn how to hear from the Spirit because that will help you speak in a way that's unique to the individuals that you encounter. If you only have one moment with a person, it's going to be especially important to know what the Spirit would say to them in that moment. But if you have a relationship with a person established where you can see them on a continual basis, you can actually teach and disciple them, that's where this information comes in. Because eventually somebody's got to get this information, right? If you have the opportunity, use it. If you don't, all you have might be to hear a word from the Spirit. And that's about all you can do at that point. And if you want to know if you're hearing from the Spirit or not, if you get a thought about a person, go and tell them and see if it's true or not. <laughs> if it's not, then they'll say it's not, and you can move on. <laughs> and I guarantee you, it's not going to harm their faith. Because I've done this plenty of times, and nobody walks away from me believing in God less than they did before. <laughs> okay? If they don't believe in God, they don't, and they're not going to get worse. Um, if you try to help them, <laughs> okay? Because at least they're going to be marked by the fact that you cared and that you tried. Amen. Okay. Last, we have time for one more question or comment, and then we're going to do the activity that I had planned. Is there any last things? Is this clear to everyone? Does everyone understand the balance? Okay. Um, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to go through all of this. <laughs> I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, what if we just have the group go through all three phases, every point, discuss every single one at the table? We're not going to do that. That'll take way too much time. So all that we're going to do is just focus on repentance and faith. So with the people at your table, and if you're new or that's fine, you don't have to be super involved in it, but maybe at least one person at the table can initiate. With the people at your table, your job is to pretend that the people you're talking to are either Unbelievers, new believers, they're just new to this in general, right? Your job is to explain what it means to repent, what it means to continue in repentance, and what it means to believe. Those three things. In as few but as clear words as possible. What it means to repent, what it means to continue in repentance, and what it means to believe. This is the most basic thing I think all of us will understand in our lives in terms of our faith and that we should be able to explain to other people. So one more time, what it means to repent, what it means to continue in repentance, what it means to believe. And if you want, you can add a fourth one, which is how do you actually do those things? So how do you repent? How do you continue in repentance? And how do you believe? Not just what those things mean. So we'll take maybe 10, 15 minutes. And if it's tough and you're struggling, that's okay. Discuss why it's tough and see how you can help each other. 